Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu cc. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you've got a rifle or a friend who's honestly more like a frenemy, what are the things they have that you really want? Maybe more money. Maybe they've got a cooler house. Maybe an awesomer job. Well, if you had a rival in the ancient world, on that list of stuff that you would secretly covet, and this is assuming your rival was actually a pretty big deal, was books. Take, for example, the ancient Greek city of Pergamon, which knew that, you know, taking stuff was all well and good, but taking knowledge made you part of an elite network. And Pergamon had their eye on this little library over in Egypt. Well, the Library of Alexandria was a kind of, it was the center of what was effectively a university. Scholars were given tax breaks to go and live there. They were, you know, they were fed, they were watered, they were given accommodation. That's Keith Houston, author of a book on the history of books. He says Pergamon had a bit of a rivalry with Egypt, which could get ugly, especially when they were fighting over very desirable scholarly works. And at one point, the king of Pergamon actually tried to poach the head librarian from the, the Library of Alexandria. And so the Ptolemies had him clapped in irons so, so he couldn't respond to the job offer. Um, it's like it was like getting the, the the really hot CEO or the really good like NBA player of the time. Like you want the best librarian, so you go and you find them. Absolutely, the Pergamines, uh, as they were called, were very acquisitive when it came to books and librarians. There was a, there was a village nearby that owned a set of scrolls that had belonged to Socrates, and when they heard that the Pergamines were coming, they buried them because they knew that the Pergamines would somehow find their way to taking away this very valuable <laughs> library of Socrates' scrolls. So they were people, people were terrified that they would actually steal their, their books. Think about a world like this, where getting your hands on a book was kind of like getting a suitcase of cash or a bar of gold, except better, because it gave you access to science or math or philosophy, and that could revolutionize your society. Houston's a software engineer who became obsessed by how books originated and how they've changed us. He's the author of The Book, a cover-to-cover exploration of the most powerful object of our time. And he says books, even in the most loosely defined way, started altering our lives from the moment they came into being. People were writing on clay tablets three or four thousand years ago, and then hieroglyphics followed fairly shortly after that. I think most historians who study books would tend to consider uh, scrolls, papyrus scrolls, to be the first books. Okay. And if that's the case, then there's evidence that we've been using them for about 5,000 years. So hmm. the book has been, I guess you could say, changing lives pretty much for as long as we've been writing on them. You know, they're one of the best ways to store information, and so they kind of tell their own story. When people were writing scrolls or, you know, books uh, thousands of years ago, were they writing things that most people could read or that like a very select elite group of people could access only? It does seem to have been just an elite. I think sort of literacy rates, even in Greece and Rome, where a few, you know, it was barely a few percent of the population were capable of reading. And so just 
just by definition, it was it was an elite pursuit. I think also the the cost of producing books made a big difference. If you can't print something, then it is very time consuming to copy a book. There was just never the technology to let books become the kind of ubiquitous thing that they are now. Hmm. So at what point did books go from being, as we were saying, sort of the province of the elite? A few people can read them. Maybe what they say is very valuable and maybe it affects a lot of people's lives. But it's not like a lot of people can pick up a book or a scroll and say, hmm, interesting, that this is, this is fascinating and absorb the material. When did that start to change? You might argue that Christianity was perhaps a major factor in that. Hmm. So Christians like to write stuff down in a way that hadn't really been true of, of the, the pagan Romans uh, before them. So Judaism had always written down stuff. That, you know, scrolls are very important to Judaism. But I think perhaps it might, even, it might even be as late as the arrival of printing. That's when it really becomes democratized. That's when there is the ability to make books that can be cheap. I think there was a, there was a printer in Venice called Aldus Minutius who kind of pioneered the idea of a small pocket book and a cheap book at that. He would print thousands of copies of an individual book rather than just a few hundred. And they'd all be quite small. You know, you, you'd recognise them as being the size of a modern paperback or even a bit smaller. Huh. And that was the first time where it was possible to, to make that number of books and to make them affordable. The idea of, I guess, the affordable book, the market for affordable books starts there in Venice towards the end of the 15th century. Hmm. Well, and also there's a kind of movement from using papyrus for your books. There was a time when animal skin was very commonly used for books. And then, you know, paper ended up being a much cheaper alternative that you could get in vast quantities, ultimately. Yeah, and a lot less bloody as well. Papyrus was relatively easy to make. You, you collected papyrus reeds, which had a kind of triangular section through the stem, and you cut them into strips, and you laid out two layers of strips, uh, one running top to bottom, another running left to right, and then pressed them together, and that was your sheet of papyrus. But parchment meant that you had to raise a sheep or a goat or a calf and then slaughter it usually less than a year of age, so that its skin, you know, you didn't want any uh, gashes, any deformities in the skin, so you you tended to slaughter them younger. You then had to soak the skin in this bath of lime and other slightly unpleasant chemicals. Uh, You had to scrape the hair off, you had to stretch it, you had to kind of polish it. It took a really long time to make. In fact, in in the archaeological record, there's a very distinct move from slaughtering older cattle to younger cattle, because Parchment was just so important. Whole herds of cattle would be slaughtered younger than they would have been in the past in order to satisfy the demand for parchment. And to just add to the disgustingness of all this, if you (laughs) go and look at some of those old books, you can see hair on the pages that comes from the animals because it's really, really hard to get all of the hair off. That's exactly right. I Actually, I bought some parchment. I bought some papyrus and some parchment as I was writing the book, just because you don't see it. You know, you, it's not like you open a modern book and find a page made of, uh, made of papyrus or parchment. Right. And the parchment is pretty grisly. If you hold it up to light, you can see the network of veins. And if you kind of angle it a bit, then you start to see the hair. You can feel the hair if you run, if you run your fingers across it. It's, it's unsettling, but it's really nice to write on. <laughs> so, um, so there's that. 
So when people started going to school en masse, you know, I think about the Industrial Revolution when there was uh, more time for education, uh, more people stayed um, in school for longer. What started happening to the book as it became literally like a cheap thing that for a dime or whatever, you could get a book and you could get a really, you know, a a thrilling one like, you know, a Dickens, you know, obviously wrote in installments, that kind of thing. How did we migrate into that time? Well, for the book, the main thing wasn't so much the change in use as a change in technology or a series of changes in technology. I mean, so the, the Industrial Revolution came along and we started automating all of the traditional parts of making a book. Mm-hmm. So every part of the making of the book, you started off with printing and then paper making came along and then uh, machines that could fold and sew and uh, cover books. All of these things were automated. And so the book didn't look much different. The books, you know, the textbooks that uh, children would have been using uh, during and after the Industrial Revolution wouldn't have looked greatly different to those from, the, you know, a century or two before. But the way they, the way they were made was quite different. And I think that was the big thing. So it's not like the book didn't change us in that period, but we changed it quite substantially. So what happens now that so many of the words we read aren't in books anymore? I mean, if you think about the words that a 12-year-old reads, I mean, they, they might read a certain number of books, but there's gonna, they're going to read a lot of text. They're going to read a lot of um, things on websites. How does it change that now so many of our words are online? I think language will be the thing, or it well is the thing that is perhaps changing as a response to this. If if you think of books as being the most formal sort of language, and maybe a text or a tweet being at the other end of the spectrum, then I think we have more opportunities to to express ourselves in language that's informal to a degree. I think the the rise of emoji, the idea that, hmm. well, this seems to be a sort of a common thread at the moment, our, our emoji language. And the answer is, uh, they're communication, they're not language. I, I quite like Moby Dick. And a few years ago, I saw a project called Emoji Dick, which was <laughs> yes, the whole I've of Moby Dick it. translated into emoji. Yeah, <laughs> using the um, Amazon Mechanical Turk service where you, you know, you can give work to people hidden behind an electronic API somewhere. So it's possible to do it. But it doesn't read. There's there's no language. There's no grammar to emoji. They are just pictograms. A funny thing is when hieroglyphs were first discovered, lots of archaeologists thought, well, this is a hawk. What does it mean? Oh, maybe it just means a hawk or things that are fast right, like right, a hawk. Right, right. It took a long time for people to appreciate that actually a hawk could be a particular sound, like a syllable as well. So hieroglyphs were much more complex than we thought they were for a long time. And emoji are not any more complex than we think they are. They are <laughs> they are just symbols. And although they'll gradually build up additional meanings, you know, some of them do already, um, they, they have kind of uh, meanings over and above what they look like, but it's still not possible, I think, to put together a kind of grammatical sentence, except if you're using them as, I, guess, I think the term is rebuses, you know, symbols for words, rather than an abstract symbol in and of itself. Do you feel like the the shift from books as we've known them for a long time to ebooks is the most significant thing to happen to the book in hundreds of years? Because I mean as you were saying, 
in a lot of ways, books are an invention that has really stuck with us in, in more or less the same form for a long time. I, I struggle with this. I, I think the reference books can safely die. I think they'd be far better served as web pages or a very, very kind of dynamic sort of ebook. But if you're looking at a novel, then yes, the technology that's generating the photons that are hitting your eyes has changed. But the content, well, the content hasn't changed. I mean, most ebooks existed as physical books before they became ebooks. Right. And people still read. People now they read perhaps more than ever, and they read in more places than ever. So again, I don't. I. It depends what you want to call a book. The physical book, yes, you'd have to say there is some threat. There is some likelihood that gradually, as we read more and more stuff using e-readers, the need for a physical book will. It'll just be squeezed, you know. Maybe, maybe we'll only take them when we know there won't be an internet connection somewhere or something like that. You know, perhaps they become right. almost like vinyl. Right. Perhaps they become collectible things that right. sit on your bookshelves, never to be read. But right. I don't. If you think of a book as a set of words strung together in a pleasing order, or as a collection of facts or a, an educational tool, then I'm I'm not sure there's much to say that ebooks are worse or they're they're just different. They're just another way of presenting us with that same information. And uh, I got to ask you, what would you say is your favorite book? Oof. Oh, I think Moby Dick has to be number one. Okay, but that's a case of the content, not the not the the physical you know book itself. My right, favorite right. copy of it is is a sort of yellowing, crappy old paperback. Keith Houston is the author of The Book, a cover-to-cover exploration of the most powerful object of our time. He also runs the blog Shady Characters. Keith, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.